I've been known to have uh, a lot of points in some of the sermons that we've had in Matthew. And the points today are that we are salt and we are light. We are salt and we are light. We're going to kind of dance around this issue with some application, with some illustrations, with, with, with some understanding of the culture of the day. But really, we're just kind of walking around. We're dancing around. We're looking from all angles at this primary idea that we are meant to be salt and light. So let's talk about salt. If you look in verse 13, Jesus says, you are salt. Not may you be salt, that would be like in the passive voice, or not you will be salt. There's some future tense in the Beatitudes that say you will inherit the earth, or uh, there is a future promise that we talk about in the future tense in the Beatitudes. Here, Jesus is saying, you, my followers, are salt. Salt in the first century and in the ancient world act, acted as a preservative. Um, when it's added to meat, it slows and stems decay it, in something that is very valuable. So meat in the ancient world with the average population was not something common. It was a real specialty. It was something like of, a, of, of great worth. And in order to preserve and to stem decay in meat, you would either dip it in a briny solution, mostly in the case of fish, or you would rub salt into every nook and cranny of that meat so that once it was cooked and you rub some salt in it, you could preserve it and have that joy for longer. Well, so it is with our Christian life. Another way to say it would be that Christians are in the world are to act as a preservative for the decay of society, for the decay and the destruction that just happens in life, like some of you have, might have had that experience, that in your teenage years you have all kinds of dreams, and you think, I'll be this fit for the rest of my life. You never think the pot belly is going to happen to you, you know? And, and you never think your joints are going to start popping, and you never think that your hair is going to suddenly like fall off the back of your head. And, and you just think this thing, when you're 16, you know, 17, 25, it's just going to go on forever. And then you live life, and you go, sometimes it kicks you in the teeth, and sometimes it's painful, and sometimes those hurts travel with you into even old age, or sometimes you have a bell curve of success in life, but then inevitably, because of decay, it falls off. Life happens, it, 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 and what I mean is decay happens in life, but it also happens in society, in cultures, in cities. You might have had that same experience. And so Christians are meant to then, called to then, enter in, to get rubbed in, to get placed in to a decaying and broken world. So when someone comes to you, application, when someone comes to you and they really need help in their life, they have emotional needs and their life in this scenario is just falling apart, what do you tend to do? I know my tendency, run, right? Because you go, this person's needy, their life's falling apart. I've got my own issues, I've got my own bills, I've got my own concerns, I have my own hopes, my own dreams, my own aspirations. I don't want to get held back by your need. That is, a, that is a knee-jerk tendency, I think, for most of us, all of us maybe. And yet, Jesus is calling us to enter into people's lives who are hurting and who need something. Or here, Jesus is saying, Christians enter into even neighborhoods that have need. In my hometown, um, it, was, it was the history of the town had been thriving hub 
kind of small metropolis in the center of the city. And then people moved into the suburbs, and it left the inner city uh, kind of decaying and, and broken. And you'd see old signs that said, Fred's Hot Dog, and my dad would say, I remember Fred's Hot Dog. It was great. You used to be able to sit with your family and have a meal, but now it's just crime infested, and it's a difficult neighborhood, and we'll never go there. And the city just moved out to the suburb, and then after about 20 or 30 years, the suburbs started to decay a little bit, and you know what people did? They moved into the ex-urb, and so they moved even further out where the land was even cheaper, and they could get homes, and then Whole Foods moved out to their neighborhood, and they go, this is sweet. We have a Whole Foods. We have an REI. We have great stuff. We have a Chili's, you know, and so this is like it moved out there, and then the inner city just decayed and fell apart. And so the city government for years had tried to say, what incentives, what money can we just throw at people's faces to get them to move to downtown Fresno? And then no one did it. And the businesses did not thrive. And there were food deserts. And then there were impoverished people who had to take buses out of the inner city to get affordable groceries. And it was just, like, it just wouldn't work. And I'm not saying it's totally different even today, but something sprung up in the churches of the suburb because Christians noticed that the churches moved out to where the people were. And so even the healthy Bible-believing churches left the inner city as well. And they started a partnership with the city, with a number of churches to fund people to move back into the inner city. They called it a neighborhood partnership. They said, you've got your house worth, um, this might sound absurd, but like worth $200,000 in Fresno. It's cheaper there. So you you have your nice suburban home in this town but look at the home that you could buy in the inner city. And if the, if the city subsidizes a few things and if the church comes around you, the, and what if God is calling you to enter into a difficult neighborhood and then you could get twice the house that in these abandoned neighborhoods and then use your house as a ministry hub. Use your house as a place to bring light to bring preservation into the city. And so all these people started doing it. They sold their homes in the suburbs, they moved into the inner city, and they started an organization that was a a neighborhood partnership. Big two-story home, inner city house, something similar to downtown Santa Ana, you might, uh, for, for a reference in North OC. And they would just use these big Victorian homes as ministry hubs for the neighborhood. You wanted to get some tutoring, the bottom floor was just set up for tutoring. That is an example, one example, of the way that God calls us to notice a need and to enter in. If we are to be salt of the earth, we enter in. That's some application. I don't know if God's calling you to that, but the question would for you be, where is God calling me to enter in? In what way am I able, through love, encouragement, finances, or hard work, to change my lifestyle to one of consumerism or one of escapism to entering in. What I just asked you is a weighty request, but yet Jesus gives us the encouragement. Like, you are meant to be salt in this world. I have some warnings, though. Warning, if you're attracted to this kind of thing, if this excites you, my warning is if you are a salty type of person, and by salty I don't mean just you post things on Facebook, like you're the negative person in the posts. That's like a meme term, salty, meaning you're just like mean. I mean the biblical metaphor, obviously. And so if you're a salty Christian, um, it might, though, be that you still have a, a motivation problem. Like not all of us are motivated by Jesus in every moment. So um, you might be attracted to this sort of thing because you like being needed. And I just want to give you a warning. 
that I think some people enter into problems because they love being a part of problems. And when they, lo- they love being the person who helps somebody with problems because it makes them feel like their problems aren't so bad or it makes them, because they're insecure about themselves, love helping people. And you might have even had this experience here because I know some people struggle with addiction here or are entering in with people who have addictions that uh, it's common in the world of addiction that um, the, an addict might have friends or family members or a spouse who, who on some level are getting their needs met by an addict ruining their own life. It's like saying, I'm here to care for you, but the, the common practice is when someone gets sober, they really have to redefine the relationships they have in life because there are other people who maybe unknowingly have been sabotaging their life for years, enabling their addiction. And when somebody starts to get their head above water and get sober, they start to notice that there are other people who might divorce them, might leave, might have a difficulty being in the family because they need to take care of you. They need you to be a screw-up so that they can have their needs met as a person who cares for others, is virtuous, is needed. Sometimes we find our own needs in being salt. And yet Jesus is... um, Certainly, Jesus is not talking about about that motivation. Other warning, uh, there are sometimes skewed motivations to be salt when we love helping people because it makes us feel superior to others. And you'll notice it in the way you talk about it. If you help people, but the way you talk about the people that you help is with disdain and with superiority, you'll know that even if you're doing godly deeds, that some part of your motivation is to serve yourself to feel superior. Jesus provides some motivation for us to enter in and bring preservation because he preserves our life. I mean, think about your own Christian life. Isn't it true that when you became a Christian, you admitted that your life was falling apart? Is it on some level, if you are a Christian, there was a point where you said, Jesus, I need you to put my life back together. I'm not able to save myself. No religious deeds, no positive thinking, no success at work, no uh, sexual partner will bring my soul and my heart fulfillment. And so I'm falling apart. Jesus, hold me together. That's what Paul says in Colossians. Colossians 1.17, uh, he says, in Jesus, we have all things held together. And you can imagine this metaphor because uh, Jesus was present in creation, that by God's power, he's holding little molecules together. He's holding the cosmic world together by his power, um, and he's holding your life together. And when we become Christians, he puts some broken pieces together and heals us in a sense. So if you're a Christian, you know on some level he's done that. And that's the motivation to say, I know what this looks like to be broken. I know what this looks like to need help, to need help from God to intervene in my broken life. And that's the motivation for us as Christians to enter into people's brokenness in our lives. This is an imperfect example, but I'll give you one personal example uh, about entering in. Um, I used to, in a former life, play guitar in a band. And everyone in the band was very talented, and they kind of allowed me also to be in the band, though I wasn't uh, as, as talented a musician as some of these other guys. And we used to play, in the town that we lived in, we used to play in bars and in nightclubs, and it was a really interesting ministry because everyone in the band, it wasn't a Christian band, but it was like a band who, of people who were all Christian. And we wouldn't say like, 
this song was about Jesus Christ and if you put your faith in him and then play our like hipster indie rock. That wasn't necessarily how it went, but we would play a number of shows. We were in, I can't believe I'm saying this, we were in the scene, you know, where like we would play in the basements, we'd play at the bars and people knew us and there was some level of respect or kind of like admiration from younger musicians about the talented people who were the other folks in the band, and I thought it was a great ministry, and after you'd get off stage, people who liked the music would come to you and say, hey, you said something between those songs that was interesting. What was that song about? And then we would get just a great opportunity to talk to a number of people about Jesus because the band saw it as some level of calling to enter in. But sometimes it's messy. Like, we played one show at like a a nightclub bar kind of thing, And I remember us thinking it was going to be a pretty straight-edge crowd. So I remember us inviting a number of people to church. Like, they might have even announced it at church and said, like, the band is going to be playing at this place late at night. And so if you want to come and support them, that would just be fantastic. They, the band sees it as a ministry, yada, yada. Somebody used this as some sort of positive example. And then some ladies, this was First Baptist Church of Bakersfield, okay? So you can tell, like, there was an organ, there was a quilting ministry. And some ladies from the quilting ministry, I remember Janet and, and um, Manon, they came to, like, it was a late night. And they came to the club, and we played our music, and we said some things between the songs, and it was really cool. I felt like it went pretty well. We get off stage, and I noticed that the crowd, crowd, you know, sometimes when you're a musician, you play to small crowds. And there were a lot of people there, but I did notice there were a number of people who came from church. It kind of almost felt like a a cool church crowd at this uh, nightclub. And uh, and then I noticed Janet and Manon and some other people from the quilting ministry. Anyways, after we got off stage, they said, next up, the comedy stylings of some random dude. And I'll tell you, I love stand-up comedy, and I'm not offended by stand-up comedy. This was the most offensive humor I have ever heard in my life. Do you know the term blue humor? It's like intensely offensive. It gave me chills because I looked out in the crowd. I was going, there's a bunch of church folks that I invited to come. And this guy did a whole bit, I mean, like probably a solid five minutes on like private parts and how funny they are and the words that we use to describe them. Anyways, I look over at the quilting, like the quilt ladies, they're laughing. I was like, how dare you? Just kidding. No, they chuckled nicely and then they found a graceful way to leave the club, check please, and they, they walked out. And then of course the other people who were in the church with me, we kind of like met up after loading our gear into the car and they said, um, like, Mike, are you fired? Or like, and I was thinking, I think so, yes. Um, but I remember somebody made the comment, like, you know what, though? This is really what it looks like to be on mission in a city. Like, this kind of messy thing where you don't know who you're going to be around. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. You're entering in with people who don't share the same values that you have. This is really what it looks like. And, and I think back on that in the same way. Like, being salt, entering in, means that you're going to be in places that might be uncomfortable. There there might be needs that you need to meet that might hurt or that might cost something. And certainly we have to set healthy boundaries. We have to not make ourselves into martyrs uh, that are miserable as if that's the only way to serve Jesus, but to still enter in and have it cost something because there are people's lives around us. And there's a city in decay around us that needs preservation needs things to be held together. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to use you as that salt preservative. And then lastly about salt, um, it also brings flavor into meat. If salt didn't make meat taste better, 
but was a preservative, people probably wouldn't eat it. It wouldn't have made its way into the, the diets even uh, in the modern world. It makes things more flavorful. And so a quick application, uh, application would be this. Um, if you are salt, then you don't look at a situation in your life and ask, what can I get out of this? You don't look at the people that you know or the circles that you roll, r- run in or the, your vocation or even your kids and ask the question, what can I get out of this? Instead, if we act like salt, Christians ask, how can I bring the best out in this organization? Like when you eat a steak and it's properly salted, you eat a steak and you don't say, my, that was some salt. No, you say that steak was amazing. And in the same way, that's our role in, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, in our city, that we bring out the best in our city. We bring out the best in Brea and the surrounding areas. We bring out the best in our neighborhood and the Halloween celebration that happens every year or, um, or Brea Fest or the, the people who help the homeless in our area. Whatever it is, like it's okay and it'll be normal for us as Christians for everyone else to get the credit. Or for us to say, wow, this city, this neighborhood, this area is awesome, and have it never point to us because that's what salt does. It brings out the flavor in other people. It's almost like you could even be salty simply by saying, you know, what I like about you is this. And just recognizing the beauty in a person or, or the, 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 the skills of an individual, and that would be a, a, a salty act bringing flavor and beauty in that way. Let's talk about light. We are, verse 14, the light of the world. We are light. And so if we're salt, then we enter in, and if we're light, then we shine bright. Christians, enter in and shine bright. Uh, Light in the Bible represents um, truth and hope. If I was going to just sum up what the Bible talks about when it uses the symbol of light, truth, and hope. Truth because it exposes falsehood, and hope or joy because it brings color and beauty. And the world is dark. Sometimes we live in uh, beautiful areas. Sometimes the weather is so nice, like it was like 71. It's just, that's the best temperature, you know, and like a five degree or a, a five mile an hour wind. And sometimes like you have people around you that also seem to have their life together, and we can fool ourselves for a time into thinking that we don't really live in a dark world. Or maybe because we're all trying to figure out how to bring some light into our world, whether we know Jesus or not, that the people around us can, can look good, can put up a front. Some of us are great at that. Can have the right job success for a time, and we can start to think, like, is the world really that dark? But if you enter in you will notice that the world has brokenness. You will notice that behind every toned bum and washboard stomach is a, a person who is concerned about how they're accepted by other people. Not everyone, just because you have a washboard stomach doesn't mean you have acceptance issues with people, but you understand what I'm saying. Behind every great selfie is a person who took a hundred selfies before they found a great selfie. Or behind every job success can oftentimes be a person who is constantly nervous about job success. Um, nobody says, like, when you ask them, hey, man, how was your weekend? They say, well, actually, I'm just kind of lonely these days. People just don't say that. When you enter in, you will find out, to switch to the other metaphor, that lives can be dark. Sometimes we think, well, my life's dark, but everyone else's seems to be light. But 
if everyone does that, the one thing you know is that the world can be very dark. Even if the world that you live in uh, relationally can be somewhat privileged. Even in the midst of great privilege can be great darkness. It, um, it was common at a time in Christian history that you would look at one of those maps of the world at night and see where the lights shine. Have you ever seen a picture of the world at night and there's like, you can see where the cities are, you can see where the towns are along the coasts, uh, in beautiful places, temperate climates, and then you can see the sections of the world where they're dark. And it used to be common in kind of Christian missionary thought that missionaries need to go into the dark places, the places that are not lit, that are not civilized, that don't have electricity, and that's a place where missionaries go. And in the postmodern world, the one thing that is kind of common amongst people who are now paying attention to these things is that Christians have to enter in to the dark places to bring hope and help to people who are impoverished as much as they need to enter into the light places because they're filled with a type of artificial light. Because you might notice, like, it's not like the L.A. Metroplex and Hollywood and downtown uh, L.A. and the industries there and the power players there. It's not like they're known for loving Jesus and then caring about justice because Jesus cares about justice. And it's not like you work in those industries and tell people, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and they go, you're a Christian? That's great. How about a promotion? No, that doesn't happen. That doesn't, it, there's no social capital from Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians in the postmodern, post-Christian world today. And so missionaries are called, if you look at the global map at night, into the light places, the urban places, the places of industry, and, and are called to shine into places that have tons of artificial light, to kind of bend the metaphor, as, as, as much as they are called to dark places as well. And it's because of that darkness that it's good news that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. He who walks in my light will have the light of life and never walk in darkness again. You know, being in the dark it is disorienting. It is confusing. Sometimes it can be painful because you, you hit your foot on stuff or you, uh, you, know, you just don't know where you're going. It can be crazy-making to live in darkness for too long, literally and figuratively as well. And it's good news that Jesus is saying, my light, my hope, my kind of joy can save you, literally, figuratively, cosmically, emotionally, and spiritually from the darkness in which you live. Um, I have spent a number of years in the religious department, religious studies department of a secular college. I went to a state college for the majority of my undergraduate career, and I studied religion at a, a secular university. And um, I also then, because of that, spent years having coffee with people from the philosophy department or the religious studies department or that sort of crowd. And I heard a million different versions of this same statement. And you might have heard them as well because many of us have friends that are not Christian. Uh, I, I'd hear dainty up versions of this. Uh, there's probably no God. If there is, we can't possibly know it. Um, we're here by accident. There's no reason why you're here. There's no real right or wrong. When you die, it's just darkness and decay. Now enjoy your life. Has anyone else ever heard some positive version of that? I saw the side of a bus that basically said it. There is no God. Now enjoy your life. And I thought, 
what a statement to try and say the hope of the world, the, the, the way to fight darkness and decay is to say darkness and decay is what you have. Now make the most of it. But what if there was a light to the world that brought hope? Christians live with the light of the gospel, not just as a, a metaphor and some sort of like um, some sort of logical thing about like that you believe, and if you put your stamp of approval on this belief system, then you can start to feel like you, you can feel warm fuzzies and feel like you have hope. But Christians, quite literally, in a time of despair and darkness, can say, I will not be in total darkness. Because Jesus has said, there's a light to my life, and I will never lose him. And so if you imagine yourself in a dark room, some of you might feel like you're in darkness, even as Christians, and yet because you'll never, be, you'll never lose Jesus, and because you have a future that is in him that is promised to you, that is as sure as he resurrected from the dead physically, because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ, First Peter 1 says, there will always be a flame that is lit, or there will always be a crack where the light shines into the room. There'll always be a bulb, though maybe it's on dim because of the emotional state that you're in will still shine. And if you have any experience with real darkness, physical, literal darkness, you know that it only takes a small amount of light to illuminate an entire room. And your eyes have to adjust to it, but you can still see where you're going with even a single light. And in the same way, that's what it's like to live as a Christian. That you could say to yourself, you could say to others, I know it's hard right now, but Christians have good seasons of life and bad seasons of life, good days and bad days. But no matter what, there will be a day when all the longing and the needs of my heart will be met in Jesus Christ. In his return, in our eternity with him. Like Christians can live through criticism, through failure, to losing everything that you had in some business venture, to losing family members, and you'll be able to say with confidence because of the promise and the literal living hope that we have through a living, resurrected Jesus that there will be a day when it will not be so and my heart will be with him. That is a light that shines in the world. Christians live with the light of that truth. And because of it, it shines all around us. Let's do some application. Some of us, when we become Christians, we think of Jesus as a flashlight meant to guide our path. Like you might have come to Jesus in a season where you said, God, what college should I go to? Who should I marry? What decision should I make? Or why do I feel this way? God, will you bring some reason or some meaning to my, my emotional life? And so we think of God as a flashlight. God, help me to walk where I need to go and help me to find the right path. And to, by God's grace, he does do that. He answers prayers, he guides us, he provides for us. But Jesus, when he says, you're, the, you're a lamp that's meant to shine in the house, what he's talking about is a, a lantern, like a 360 degree lantern. You're, God is not a flashlight in your hand meant to be shown when you decide or to whom you have enough courage or boldness to reveal him, but it's meant to be a lantern. It's meant to be who you are. 
It's meant to be so a part of your identity that you're not selectively the light of the world, but that you are just shining brighter and brighter as you know Jesus in more and more areas of your life. And I think some people in this church are just so stinking bright, I just can't believe how bright they are. You know, like they say things that sound Christian-y, but they mean them because they love Jesus. And I go, wow, I wish I was less skeptical so that when I heard someone say, I'm blessed, I didn't just go, oh, are you? You're probably like melancholy like me because I'm a millennial. Like, can we just be authentic here and just talk about how no one's happy? Like, like they're just actually happy in Jesus? And I go, oh man, maybe I should be more like you and less cynical. Like, and that's what it looks like to be a Christian where you're not lying, you're not fooling yourself, you're not using Christianity in some sort of weird denial. You're saying, I'm happy in Jesus. It gives me hope. I know that through struggles and through criticism and through fights and through conflict and through hurts, that there's one thing that will never be taken away from me, which is my hope in Christ, or which is Jesus himself. I can't lose my salvation by screwing up. Uh, my, my little bit of faith in a big Savior will, will uh, sustain me through growing that faith in more areas of my life. And so my, my hope is that we are like 360-degree lanterns that if in your workplace or in your neighborhood you can have the courage to hold it up, it will shine more on the people and the things around you. And when that's the case, you will then bring color and clarity and functionality to the world around you. Like when it's dim, you can't get stuff done. Like, you know, when the power goes out and you go, I think it's the zombie apocalypse. Like, I think the world's over. I don't have my cell phone charger. And uh, like, when the power goes out, it's fun actually for about five minutes because you found the candles and you light them and then you like play a board game or whatever. But after about three hours, you go, okay, enough of it. Um, and darkness limits functionality. And when it's dim, you can't see colors uh, in full view. And in the same way, when we shine bright, we bring some beauty and color to the world around us. Let's do some application, as I said. And so um, the, the application will look something like this. You will bring, I want to read you a quote. So Timothy Keller is a, an author I read a lot, and he wrote a number of books. His church is in New York. He's written a number of books about ministry to people in need, mercy ministry to like folks who are homeless and uh, in need. He's written books about social justice from a Christian perspective, and he says this about salt and light. He says, your life should be so beautiful that when it comes into contact with other parts of the environment, the beauty of your life shows up other things uh, for what they really are. For example, if you're a Christian, then just by your very presence, you reveal the dishonesty in the business. You reveal the gossip in the office. You reveal the racism in your neighborhood. You reveal the corruption in your political district. You reveal the promiscuity at your house party just by simply being a Christian and being there. Your life should be different by the way in which you handle pressure the way in which you take criticism, the way in which you treat the people who work under you. In, if you are like Jesus Christ, the beauty of Jesus is going to show up. A good light shows you real color. Our lives, if they shine bright with the hope of Jesus, with the good news of the gospel, and all the different ways that that light shines from different angles and onto different things, it should bring some beauty. Like today is International Women's Day. Um, if you're from a culture or a family system or a church background or a work environment that subjugates women, that, that doesn't uh, treat women with equality of opportunity, that doesn't recognize the God-given image and dignity in their life, then just by believing what the Bible says about gender and valuing that design 
and how different people, and, and male and female, reflect God's very glory and his very nature. If we don't recognize that and then create that equality of opportunity, create that dignity, create that respect, create that openness towards different types of people in these different spheres of influence, then the idea is by living out that biblical view, we should shine bright in a way that creates respect and dignity for all different people, especially women who have historically been kind of like subjugated in different cultures, different work environments, and different places in our society even uh, today. We should be countercultural in that regard. Like it was common in the first century for Christians to be known as real prudes when it came to sexuality and gender, but to be very loose in terms of our generosity and care for other people. It was almost like we, they didn't fit into a political party back then, and they almost kind of have a hard time fitting into it today. That like you'd get it from both sides. You'd say, you're too conservative. Why are you guys so conservative? And then other people would say, man, you guys are so liberal, and you're all into like helping with social justice. And like it's hard to fit because it's a gospel thing. It's not a, it's not a world thing. It's not a political party thing. And I'm not making any political statement here outside of just saying, um, as that light shines on different things, Jesus is going to confront all the different things of the world in your workplace, in your house, in your family system. We are meant to be a countercultural community. In verse 14, you'll, say, you'll see it says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And I don't have time, much time for it, but it might make sense to you that a city would, ne- would normally be by a river in the ancient world. A city would almost never be on top of a mountain. It would take so many resources and so much work to put a city on top of a hill. Those were rare. Most cities were just next to a river where transportation and trade was possible. And so Jesus is saying, you're meant to be this set-apart, different, counterculturally obedient to Jesus community in such a way that people will see that light and say, wow, that's uncommon. And that's different. And so if you're asking the question, how should I be a counterculturally obedient Christian? Then actually, you have to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus talks about redefining sex counterculturally, redefining power, redefining money, in a way that uh, the original hearers said, wow, that either makes me want to follow you and love you or kill you. It was countercultural for Jesus. That's why people's response to Jesus was never lukewarm. It was always, wow, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are worthy of worship. We want to follow you, give you our lives, or let's kill him. The the lukewarmness of American Christianity is only because people uh, make Jesus into kind of their modern American suburban Jesus, where he doesn't disrupt our plans and disrupt our values. And so if you come honest to the information You'll respond to Jesus like people did in the first century, worship him or get rid of him. But there's no middle ground. Because he's a countercultural savior, he calls us to live counterculturally. And so if you're interested in how that works out, then come for the next few weeks because we're going to work through the rest of the sermon. Counterculturally, uh, as light and salt will mean that you have to, at times, speak up. Speak up about Jesus. Talk about God as Savior and worthy of worship. Um, In a book by Jeff Vanderstilt called Gospel Fluency, a book that was written to train Christians on how to believe the gospel and have it work into all areas of their life, Jeff Vanderstilt writes of a testimony of a gal from his church. And basically, this girl was working in a a large office building, and uh, she had a number of coworkers that she was very close with and had great kind of work chemistry. 
And then independent from her work life, somebody invited her to church and she became a Christian. And she got discipled and kind of mentored in that church and started growing in her faith and then went back into her workplace to share her faith with her coworkers that were also close friends that spent a lot of time together. And when she started talking about church and what was new with her life, her coworkers said, wow, you became a Christian. We're Christians too. And, uh, and she said, well, she kind of got mad. So the book describes, and she asked, why didn't you tell me that you were a Christian? And she went on to describe quite eloquently to say, I always knew you were loving I always knew we got along together. I knew there was something special about you. But because you never told me about Jesus being the hope and the motivation for your life, what it convinced me of was that I could do it on my own. And I thought to myself, if I can just be like my friends at work who have their life together, who seem like they're resilient and they they have some sort of hope in their life, then I can finally do it. And she describes in the book that the only reason she came to Christ was because she was finally convinced that she was unable to be as good as her friends and coworkers in her life. And so she needed Jesus to intervene. And so she kind of got mad at her coworkers and said, why didn't you tell me you were Christians? Because all you convinced me of was that it was possible to be righteous in my own strength. And what you convinced me of with all of your love and all your good deeds and all your hope, but no gospel, was that you don't need Jesus to have hope. I think sometimes we're pushed into a place where because it's difficult, because it takes some nuance It takes some respect for other people. It takes understanding a work culture. It takes understanding a family culture. It it takes some attention to share Jesus that we don't do it. And we think, as long as I keep loving people, one day, magically, somebody will come up to me and say, you're so kind. By chance, do you believe in Christ as your penal substitutionary atonement who who paid for your sins and because of God's love has imputed righteousness to you and that empowers you to respond in faith? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Thank you very much, right? And I could give you some examples that might motivate, and I certainly don't want to use too many examples of my own life. I'm kind of flawed at it and find myself lacking courage as well and worrying about the fact that maybe somebody's going to ask some question of me where I finally realize like, oh, wait, maybe none of this is true or uh, because I can't answer it in that very moment or something absurd like that. But in the end, My prayer for us as a church is that we just act as courageous people, and we find our courage in a Savior who lost his reputation, who lost his riches, and lost everything for the sake of saving us. And I have kind of a secret final point for you that uh, I'll just wrap up quickly with. If you are salt and you are light, it's going to cost you something. And if you have your Bible, I don't think we'll have it on the screen. You just got to go to the passage that Jesus, um, that we talked about last week, that led us into talking about salt and light, just the verses right before this passage. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, you're blessed when you face some level of persecution because there are people in the world who do come honest to the good news of Jesus and say, I don't like that. 
I don't, and, and I'm not sure your experience, but it seems to me that the verdict is in other religious figures in the world kind of get a pass. And I've got some examples, but I'm long, uh, going long here, about the fact that in the scholarly world and in the professional world, other religious scholars, or I'm sorry, other religious figures can be summed up in some sort of helpful way that's palatable for a majority of people, and yet Jesus still, amongst scholarship, amongst political elites, amongst major uh, corporations and major power centers of our society, is not treated with that same respect. Why? Because if the claims of Jesus are true, your life has to change. That there has to be some response, if this Jesus thing is real, in your heart to say, I'm with him or I'm against him. And because of that reality, just that very reality, in the, in the, the, the centers of study if you're in college, in the centers of industry if at work, and in the neighborhoods and what's popular in, your, in the cultures in which we live, There's something that will always rub every culture, every industry wrong about Jesus because of those implications. And so you will face persecution. I'm not trying to convince anyone to have a martyr complex or a victimhood complex. I'm just saying, if you are salt and light and you're actually courageous and you're actually helpful and you're actually vocal, then you will face persecution. And Jesus says, don't be surprised because that's what they did to me. And that's what they did to the prophets. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus Christ, who being equal with the Father, made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus lost his reputation on the cross. Think of the abuse to the the Son of God so that we could be saved. Think of his reputation lost. Think of the riches that he lost in this world to be killed for our sake. He didn't count that level of equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself to death on the cross. Because of that, we shouldn't be surprised if something costs us because it costs him. If something hurts us because it hurt him. And in the same way that Jesus saved us, we get to enter in and shine bright with that hope. Let's pray.